Punk music had arguably existed for almost 20 years when Green Day's Dookie was released in 1994. It wasn't breaking new ground, it didn't seem to fit with the dark musical themes occurring in grunge. What it did was open doors to bring punk to a mass audience. This was punk that even your parents could enjoy in the car. Through strong hooks and clever lyrics, Green Day blazed a path for young songwriters to leave their dorm rooms and get on stage. Today on Hidden Jukebox, we discuss Green Day's major label debut, Dookie. I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster Burton. And this is Hidden Jukebox. Hey, so uh, did your parents listen to Green Day in the car? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that my mother did. I think my mother did, too. What a, what a coincidence. Th- this is strange how these things work when we have the same mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Jake and I are brothers. Uh, five years apart. Yep. Uh, so I, I came across this album my freshman year of college. Which meant that I was a freshman in high school. Yes. Uh, and I discovered it as i discovered many bands on the mtv show 120 minutes oh yes which if i remember correctly was a 120 minute show you do remember correctly on saturday nights i think it was sunday night it i know it was a night that nobody except teenagers were watching mtv right it was i think it was sunday from 12 sunday night from 12 to 2 and and matt pinfield became one of my heroes during that time. Oh, for me, it was Dave Kendall, because like, I, I watched during the Dave Kendall era. I, I looked, and this show had five or six different hosts. Oh, yeah. In fact, they brought Matt Pinfield back many years later. Um, but at the time, he was the perfect nerdy... I love music type of host right. that that appealed to me. And Dave Kendall, Dave Kendall was English and like he would say Manchester and, uh, <laughs> you know, he seemed like sort of like an unattainable English level of cool, which worked in a different way. Like he would he would teach, teach you about like the Stone Roses and Ned's Atomic Dustbin and that sort of thing. Right. Which I remember as being some of your favorite bands at the time. Um, half of those were some of my favorite bands at the time. <laughs> Ned's Atomic Dustbin. I, I remember the name very well. Well, anybody who watched 120 Minutes, there were bands that they loved and then most likely bands that they hated. Well, yeah, and you just wouldn't see the bands that they hated. Well, I, I'm i sitting there one night and Longview comes on mm-hmm. and I hadn't been much of a punk person at that time. But it starts with this bass line that is incredibly catchy. Yes. And... <laughs> Bingo. Um, Maybe we should play it just to start out things. Yeah, let's do it. So, 
one of the things that I was thinking about when we decided to do this album was how upbeat it was. And uh, I started paying attention to the lyrics as I was going back through and listening again. Yeah, like you, I'm not much of a lyrics person. Right. Um, so as I'm listening to this, it's very depressing. Yeah, it is. There is this counterpoint to this upbeat music that they're writing in almost every song on, the, on this album where Billy Joe Armstrong seems to be talking about his anxiety level, his depression level, how he liked to spend most of his time at home. Yes. The other thing that strikes me listening to this song is that Reprise Records, who they had just been signed to, who took a chance on them and on punk, allowed them to start out as a first single with a song that has shit and fuck in the first verse uh -huh. before they even hit the chorus. Right. I'm not saying it's the boldest move ever taken by a label, but at the time when things hadn't become as loose as they are these days, right. it was a big step to take. Uh, yeah, and like, it it seems like this album was everywhere. Like, to the extent that I, I remembered that uh, my friend Kenji, uh, who was in a kind of just like an indie college band called Miscellaneous at the time, um, they they were advertising for a new singer and they felt like even though they weren't really Green Day fans, they had to put Green Day as one of their influences just so people would pay attention to the ad. Well, you, you want to talk about big hits. Uh, this album has now sold 20 million copies. Really? Yeah. That is such an extreme level. Uh, we were discussing a little bit the... Uh, Number one album on Billboard right now is somebody who I've never heard of. A, I, I could not believe this when you told me. A Boogie with the Hoodie. Mm -hmm. This is actually a record low for albums sold as a number one album on Billboard. This week, this album sold 823 copies. So is that because, does that like not include streaming equivalent? Probably not. Okay. It probably just includes albums sold, but... It shows what a different time this was back yeah. then. When major labels were seeking out somebody to record, to put out, they were putting a lot of money into it. They wanted something that they knew was going to be a hit. Yeah. And at this time, the producer of the album, Rob Cavallo, claimed that this album created the pop punk genre. Which it did not. It didn't at all. Um, at this point, just to name a few, Recipe for Hate by Bad Religion had come out. Pennywise's self-titled album had come out. Uh, uh, no Effects's White Trash, Two Heaps and a Bean had come out. These, I'm sure, were big influences on Green Day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, at the same time, it is true that none of those were huge hits. Um, you know, certainly not like the dookie level of hits. As I, um, as I said in the intro, this really brought it to the masses. Right, right, exactly. So, I don't know, I guess I guess Rob Cavallo deserves like a half a back, back pat. <laughs> well, he has uh, definitely made a lot more hits than then, since then. He uh, He's recorded Eric Clapton. He recorded all of the Goo Goo Dolls' biggest hits, okay. which became a surprise to me. Uh, Dave Matthews Band. Yeah. Linkin Park. My Chemical Romance. None of this surprises me. Um, I was... Did he produce American Idiot? He did produce okay. American Idiot. Uh, he produced, I think, four different Green Day albums. And he had only produced one album before this one by the Muffs. And 
another surprising thing that I found in researching this was the label didn't seek out Green Day. Green Day came to Rob Cavallo after hearing the Muffs album, said, we love what you're doing with production and we want you to produce our album. And he heard the two albums that they had put out before on Lookout Records and said, yes, I want to do this. Yeah, like a tendency of mine that that Jake is going to try and rein in is like, there's nothing I enjoy more than like grabbing someone and saying, you have to listen to this obscure band that I know about and you don't. (laughs) But if you like Green Day and have not listened to the Muffs, I think you're in for a real treat. Well, I I think now is a good time to mention that in high school, a lot of my friends called me a music fascist. Uh, I either absolutely loved a band or I said, this is the biggest waste of time mm-hmm. I've ever heard. And you are you were also a member of the Proud Boys. <laughs> That's not true. Um, over the years, uh, I have chosen to go back to albums that I loved and more importantly to bands that I didn't love and take a second listen to see what made things a mainstream hit. Uh, I always like to use Oasis as an example uh-huh. because... Oh, that also came out like around the same time? De- oh, the definitely same maybe year. was the same, same year, year as Dookie? That, yeah. And that was their debut. And I had a loathing for this band. And nowadays I hear the songs and I think, man, that is an incredible pop hit. And that that will probably be an album that we'll cover on this. We, we won't talk about it today, but... Uh, on the contrary, I don't think that I'm into obscure bands as much these days. I think that I like listening to what's in the mainstream and seeing not only where it came from, but what makes it unique and original. Yeah, and there, there are a couple of other podcasts that I listen to that, uh, that explore that idea really well. One of them is Switched on Pop. Have you heard this? I have not. It's like a songwriter and a musicologist sit down and like really dissect current hits. They're probably probably going to talk about Boogie with the Hoodie within a couple of weeks from now. <laughs> I'm sure that Boogie with the Hoodie is going to be a hit years from now that sure. everybody will still be talking well, about. Well, they they did um, they did Gucci Gang and uh, tried to come. Neither of them liked it, but they tried to come up with like something they could find to enjoy about it. I kind of like Gucci Gang. <laughs> Gucci Gang must be one of these obscure bands because I don't know. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a song by. Um, Little Pump, I think. Nope, still yeah. not getting it. <laughs> it, go, it goes like this. Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. <laughs> we'll, we'll drop it a little sample of Gucci gang. Oh, my God. So, uh, Matthew, what song did you pick off this album? Um, I picked Basket Case. Should we take a little listen to that? Let's. Do you have the time to listen to me whine? About nothing and everything all at once I am one of those melodramatic fools Neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it Sometimes I give myself the creeps Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me it all keeps setting up I think I'm cracking up Am I just paranoid? Am I just stuck? I went to a shrink to... Okay, so... I, 
I think I've told this story a million times. It's not really even a story. Um, it's uh, just like when this, right around the time this song came out as a single, um, some someone who was even more of a music dickhead than me was... Uh, or was, me. Yeah, was, um, uh, you know, we were having one of these late night stoned college conversations. Um, and it was like, you know, Green Day, like anybody could write those songs. Like, I don't get it. Um, and... I was this, you know, basket case started playing in my head and I'm like, you know, it is simple. That's true. Um, You know, anyone can learn to play that song. It is not true that it's easy to write songs that are that simple and that catchy. So I I will shamelessly uh, keep mentioning that my degree is in music, that Mm -hmm. I'm a bass player on this show. And so I tend to listen a lot to what's going on within the music and how a song is written. Billy Joe Armstrong has one of those innate abilities to write a pop song that seems simple to the layman, but exactly. is so incredibly challenging. You listen to this album, and they seem to switch back and forth between chorus or verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, and some sort of outro. And half the time, the bridge will have lyrics, and half the time, it will just be an instrumental thing that's kind of based off of either the verse or the chorus. Sure. It is very, very difficult to do that successfully, and to do it over and over again on one album, He he's just got an incredible knack for how to make a song sound good, most likely, and I'm making an assumption here, with no formal training to do it. I, I'm sure you're right. Yeah, I'm sure he did not go to music school. I, I think the like the thing that is sort of uh, uh, like deceptive is that it is easy to do that almost very well. Like you know, you learn a few power chords and you can write a song that is kind of catchy and kind of has a Green Day energy to it. But like there is so much involved in that next, you know, 10 last 10 percent of the way there. Well, and that last 10 percent is not just lyrics that somebody who doesn't pay attention to music can hear and relate to. No, it's also singing with an insane accent. (laughs) I I agree with that. It's not just the accent, though. Seriously, he writes amazing melodies. Mm-hmm. He's pick, yeah. he's picking these four chord changes, and then he's hearing these melodies over the top of it that you find yourself humming when you walk along the street, that, yeah. that your mom and dad probably hum when they hear it, and did it over and over again on multiple albums. This, I think, appealed to the masses so much because they're pop tunes. Yeah, they they are simple pop tunes. They're they're not just using a punk formula. They're using a formula that's been around since Elvis Presley. Yeah, for sure. Since Fats Domino, since since the fifties. And they they like used some more kind of signifiers of of that kind of like oldie stuff on later albums. Like I feel like there are some songs on Warning that definitely like they let some of that vibe in very explicitly. I I agree, and they're they're not. I don't I don't like talking about them as pioneers. They are they are not the sure. only band to do this. So we had a list here of other bands that came after them. Uh, no effects, bad religion, who actually both started before them. Well, yeah, well, they, they're kind of contemporaries. I think I made I made a list. We made a list of like contemporaries. And then I threw in like some uh, like contemporary to us, like c- current bands that are clearly Green Day influenced. Right. Uh, Rancid, The Offspring, Blink-182, Social Distortion, 
Bush, uh, obviously more grunge, but ha- had that punk influence, and also Weezer. Yeah, how so? I th- I put Weezer in there because, like, you know, what kind of band is Weezer? They're a rock band. Yeah, I know, but like, is there is there something? What is different between what Weezer is doing musically and what Green Day is doing? Very, very little. That's what I thought. They're they're playing four chord changes uh-huh. with some distortion. They're writing fantastically catchy melodies mm-hmm. over the top of them. And once again, their lyrics are about loneliness, yeah. heartache, addiction, uh, anxiety, depression. But they do it in a way that's catchy and poppy that if you're not listening, you wouldn't even know it. Yeah. It's, it's funny to me, like, in retrospect, like... It really seemed to me at the time like Green, like Green Day and Weezer were in two different musical genres. I know. And then you look like, back and, you, and like, you go, "What was I? What was I thinking?" Well, this is a good time to talk about that uh, post grunge, which was really only about two years later. They start calling all of this alternative music. Oh, okay, right. I thought you were. I thought you were talking about that. There was a genre called post grunge. Like, <laughs> I hate the post prefix in music so much. I have no idea what post rock or post punk are, and I, I don't care. I, I don't either. It's 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 like math rock. I want yeah. to think that it's something that it's not. Um, but they had to start calling it alternative because bands like Weezer, uh, bands like Belly, th- these bands that didn't really fit into the dark, loud sounds mm-hmm. that were coming out of grunge. How did they categorize that, them? That I had somehow completely forgotten that there was a time before they called it alternative music. It was a very short period that yeah. grunge was called grunge. And it only seemed to encaps- encapsulate about 10 bands or so. You know, you had Alice in Chains. Yep. You had Soundgarden. You had Pearl Jam. You had Stone Temple Pilots. Yep. And even then, you're starting to get into this alternative era. So there was this whole rock genre uh but because rock had been hair metal in the 80s, they didn't want to call it rock. They they didn't yeah. want to throw it into the same genre as Guns N' Roses. So they had to come up with a new name for it. Yeah. And and of course, in retrospect, like uh, Pearl Jam is, is a very straight ahead rock band, like classically, you know, classic rock inspired. Oh, it. And, and that's not a criticism it, at all. Just, it's, it's not. It's probably partially why they're still popular. Yeah, absolutely. 30 years later yes. is because. Once again, they were just accessible more than being a time capsule. Yeah. Although they never wrote anything good after about 1995. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Let's go to another song. Some some people really like Yield. I, I'm not I, one of those people. I, I actually really liked that album. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's It's got some good songs on it. All right, pick a Green Day song. So the next song I picked was She. Um, yeah. Let, let's play this first, and then I'll explain why I picked this song.
You know, I think it's really easy to play clips from this album because all of the songs are about two and a half minutes yes. long. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the structure the structure is very similar. And in fact, you know, now that I think about it, one thing that sets uh, Green Day apart, I know I cut you off because you were going to say what you liked about this song, but uh, before I forget, one thing that sets Green Day apart from a lot of punk predece- predecessors, including Bad Religion, um, is that they they are using the, the Pixies-originated and probably the Pixies didn't originate this either, but the, the quiet, quieter verse, louder chorus structure. Not as quiet as a Pixies or Nirvana verse, but it's definitely, you know, like, uh, you know, we got to the chorus. Now we're going to, like, turn the Marshall stack up to 10. But that's also something very difficult to do, especially in punk music. You didn't hear a lot of dynamics. Right, exactly. They, that's the word I was looking for. They created a impressive level of dynamics on this album. Some songs are just loud, but some songs are quiet and they, it, they got better and better at it as their career went on. Yeah. What I want to say about this song, uh, going back to my bass tendencies is when I teach lessons to kids, I often use this song. They let you near kids? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you can't make one note sound awesome, you're never going to make a thousand notes sound cool. Mm-hmm. And I always think of this song when I think of that because it opens with this one note bass line. How many times is it is that note repeated? <laughs> uh, probably about 30 to 50 mm-hmm. before, before they do a change. And he makes it sound so cool. And and once again, Billy Joe Armstrong brings in a, a melody over what Mike Durnt is playing without playing any guitar. And it's so hummable. It's yeah. got such an incredible melody. Now, once again, this is... A song that sounds upbeat and the chorus is, are you locked up in a world that's been panned out for you? Are you feeling like a social tool without a use? Scream at me until my ears bleed. I'm taking heed just for you. Not exactly the most upbeat thing that you've heard in your entire life. Um, But yeah, that's one of my favorite songs on the record. It is. And it was one of five singles put out for this album. Um, It. It's what was called radio only, which doesn't really exist anymore. What, what does that mean? I, I saw that it was referred to as the radio only single, she, and I have no idea what that means. Back in the day, videos were so important. Oh, that, of course. So so Pearl Jam was like the classic radio only band because they didn't like doing videos right. really. But most bands, if they put out a single, the way that it got heard was on MTV. So to put out a song and put it radio only was a big deal back in that day because it was like... Either you're not trying to sell it or you don't need to anymore because your album's already sold 10 million okay. copies like this one has. Did, was Jeremy Pearl Jam's last video during their golden age? Uh, they technically did an animated video for Do the Evolution. But that was much later. It was That that was the yield era. That was not the golden age. That was not the um, golden age. Because I sort of imagine Pearl Jam, like like the label comes in like, okay, we need another video. And they're like, we did a video. <laughs> like. <laughs> like, didn't you see this Jeremy video? It's great. Like, <laughs> we I, did that already. <laughs> I go back and watch some of these videos, and I think about what that must have been like for the labels, because nowadays, clean pop music is m- made for videos because it's these abnormally attractive people who, yes. who are made to be in front of the camera. And all of these alternative or grunge bands that were around back then, it was like, 
well, what else are we going to film besides the band? Because we can't keep these people on, <laughs> right, the, on exactly. camera for more than five seconds. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I just want close-ups of Jerry Cantrell for four minutes. <laughs> I, yeah, at least his fingers, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this this was one of five top ten hits off this album. Uh, How many top ten hits have you had? You've been in a bunch of bands. I, I've been in about ten bands, and I've um, not scratched the surface. Yeah. It, it is a very difficult thing to do. And back in those days, major labels wanted to find bands that they could guarantee a hit out of. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think that's different now. I mean, I, th- I think now it's even like more like there are, there are songwriting teams that, that you know, put together a, a guaranteed formula hit and look for an artist to, to perform it. But there- I think it's happens a lot more now than it did back then there's there's the ways and abilities to sell it now that didn't exist back then that that don't work for the bands the way that it used to yeah oh sure it used to be you sign a contract they would pay for an album for you and and pay for a tour and they would work their asses off to create a hit now it's only these major bands now on the opposite side of things, back then, being able to record your own album was not easy. Right. It was, uh, yeah, no, I remember. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you you could buy yourself a four-track player and try and do it in the privacy of your own room, but it was only going to sound so good. Right. To make it sound polished like, like Green Day's Dookie does meant going into a major studio, spending thousands upon thousands of dollars to make it sound right. Thousands of thousands of dollars a day, oh, usually. Yeah. 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 And and nowadays you can do it in the comfort of your living room, make it sound just as good, which means that the the industry is saturated with bands and for uh major record labels to find stars nowadays they get inundated with demos being sent to them that all sound clean and polished. Right. How do you make the choice and you're not guaranteed to make millions and millions of dollars off them anymore because your number one selling album might only sell 823 <laughs> copies in its first week. I, 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 we need to like end the show now because I really want to listen to Boogie with the Hoodie and see what this sounds like. <laughs> Maybe we can tag it at the okay, end or great. something. <laughs> um, should we? When do you want to talk about how uh, male this musical moment was? Because I think this is a problem that we're going to get into repeatedly on the show. You're talking about this era, right? This era, yes. Well, go ahead and, and say what you got to say. Um, well, I mean, it's it's sort of like, I don't have, have anything to say that isn't extremely obvious, but like the bands we've mentioned so far are Pennywise, No Effects, Bad Religion, Rancid, Offspring, Blink-182, Social Distortion, Bush, Weezer, and The Muffs. <laughs> uh, so one one of those bands has one female member total. Um, so like, what are there, are there other like female fronted pop punk bands from that era that I don't know about because, you know, they didn't get the, the airtime that they deserved. What, what's going, I can name some that, that are, uh, you know, that are active now that I really like. Well, there was Hole. There was. Sure. There was L7. Yeah. There was, uh, uh, no doubt, I think. Um, you know, it was, it was considered like a ska band at the time, but like I re-listened to some of Tragic Kingdom, and it certainly fits. Absolutely. And nowadays, there's bands like Paramore, mm-hmm. also yeah. pr- also produced by Rob Cavallo, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, 
so there's there was room in there for them, but this this was so dictated by the labels yeah. in my opinion. This this was them going we need another hit like fill in the blank and they wouldn't hear a female's voice so they wouldn't think to seek it out. Right. I I think that that the bands that made it that were female fronted Sonic Youth for instance sure. par- partially free, yep. female fronted it was a little bit of luck. Oh, definitely. Um you know, I I hate saying this because because I bring it up quite a bit, but I don't think that Hole would have been been as big as they were if it weren't for Kurt Cobain. Um, no, I I think that's true. Um, I I mean I think you, that's that's both true and and unfair because Hole was great. The other band from this era that was female fronted that became really big was Portishead. Yes, that's true. That came also came out the same year, right? It, it did. Dummy and. Talk about a departure from what this album is and what else was going on at the time. It just shows how much of an identity crisis the music industry had, where once again, if you try to describe what Porter's Head is, they don't sound anything like this, but they would be considered an alternative band, just yeah, like Green Day is. Absolutely. They, they would have been lumped into the same category. Uh, yeah. Now, eventually, we'll talk about bands or groups like TLC and and some of the pop that was coming out but I think that that's a part of it is that major labels heard rock yes that's as, yes that's exactly a, it as a male thing and heard pop as anybody and everybody right and yeah that's 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 pretty fucked up <laughs> well how much of that has changed now from back then <laughs> not enough but some i think yeah uh you know Women like Beyonce have definitely blazed a trail where labels don't just seek out women, but they think they're more likely to be stars than men are in in some cases these days. Yeah, but still only in some genres, I think. Right. Um, I forgot. We, we made a list of some of the albums that came out the same year Man, as, as Dookie. This, this this okay. was a huge year for for albums. All um, right, can I read some of them? Go ahead. All right, uh, Offspring, Smash, which was also uh, a third album by a pop punk band that uh, became their their huge hit. Uh, Soundgarden, Super Unknown, Beastie Boys, Ill Communication, uh, Nirvana, Unplugged, Pearl Jam, Vitology, uh, Blur, Park Life, Oasis, Definitely, Maybe, uh, Nine Inch Nails, Downward Spiral, Whole, Live Through This, Nas, Illmatic. Weezer, uh, Portishead Dummy, Beck, Mellow Gold, uh, uh, Notorious B.I.G., Ready to Die, and uh, Alice in Chains, Jar of Flies, all the same year. Now, I'm I'm not going to try and name albums that have come out since then that are considered seminal works of music, but this just shows how much albums mattered more yes, in the 90s. Yes, that's true. Because you talked to... We should do like a whole podcast about albums from the 90s. What a great idea. Cool. <laughs> uh, you you talk to anybody probably over the age of 25, maybe 30. I don't... I try not to talk to those people. I, I, I hear you. And, and they're going to know at least 80% of these albums and probably know them really well, most if not all the way through. Yeah. It's, it's not just the singles. It's... We would... 
drive around in our cars and listen to entire album start to finish. Well, I mean, because the album was on a physical disc and the best you could do was shuffle play it. Remember how remember how CD players used to have a feature that you could like program like I want to hear track two and then track six and then track nine. But it was extremely, uh, you know, you had to like, take go step by step. And it was like programming your VCR. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think anyone ever used this feature. Well, that's what Spotify is for. Exactly. But, but this was this was proto-Spotify. This was like Spotify that didn't actually work. Uh, so, so my point is you had to listen to all the songs. Right. And, and the amazing thing is a lot of these albums we just, we just named, you could do that and they were great start to finish. Yes. I, I have always been an album person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that, to, another word for that is an old person. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> uh you know, people from our era, if we were the same era, mm-hmm. the G funk era, the G funk era, uh, really would latch onto whole albums. And part of being cool, part of the elite, like you were describing me, uh, <laughs> what was not knowing the singles, but knowing the the oh, other songs on yes. the album. And what's funny is I listen to Dookie now and I go back and go, well, the best songs on the albums were the on the album were the singles but back then i wanted to be the guy who was like oh well <laughs> my favorite song is all by myself yeah yeah because it's the hidden track on the album yep. and i know that it's there <laughs> if you don't then you're not even a green day fan. exactly <laughs> uh, i also used to latch onto whole albums like live through this and celebrity skin <laughs> <laughs> only those two yeah well yes <laughs> Uh, what other song did you There's pick, There's probably Matthew? someone who really, really likes the whole, like, 2012 album. Did they come out with an album in 2012? I think so. Something like that. Wow. <laughs> uh, what What other songs did you pick? Uh, I picked Having a Blast. Um, so I think that's the goofy. Well, okay, it's not the goofiest song on the record. The goofiest song on the record is all by myself. But uh, it's sort of like a pure uh, escapist uh, goofball fantasy of like I'm mad and I'm going to blow you all up. The one of the reasons I pick this is partly partly because just like lyrically, it's it's more off the wall than than the other ones we've been doing. Um, but uh, also so I could have an excuse to talk about Easy E a little bit. Um, because what this song reminds me of is the, you know exactly what I'm going to say, don't you? I do. Go ahead. Um, it's uh, the easy song, is Nobody Move. Is that the song? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> about about where Easy is pulling off a robbery. I wouldn't exactly recommend this song. It's really problematic. Uh, when I was in middle school, I thought it was an amazing song. <laughs> um, and the the other day, um, I was uh, I was taking an Uber, and the Uber driver had an Easy E air freshener hanging from his mirror, and, and I said, "Oh my God, is that an Easy E air freshener?" And he said, "I'm so glad you noticed." The last person who asked me about it said, "Is that an Ice Cube air freshener?" Tell me he was driving a six four Impala. <laughs> no, damn it. <laughs> 
Also, uh, this is probably the first time I've ever known that you listened to Easy E during middle school, so that makes me really happy. Uh huh. Oh yeah, no, like when when I was in middle school was when Easy Does It and uh, Straight Outta Compton came out. So like those got taped and passed around to everybody. Right. Uh, I I love this song um, because. Once again, it's a guitar intro. The bass comes in. It really makes you realize that this band is a trio. Yeah. Um, There weren't a ton of trios at this time coming out, at least not outside of punk music. Uh, It takes a lot to fill space when you're in a trio. Yes. And this band had not just the great ability to do that, but two people who could sing really well in it. And although Billy Joe is the lead singer... There are great harmonies in a lot of these songs, which is not an easy thing to accomplish, especially not in punk music where you've got a lot of noise going on behind what you're doing. Yes. And I think um, I feel like Bad Religion was one of the pioneers of great harmonies in punk, like the the oohs and ahs, they always called it. Yeah. Like they, they would do a lot of three part harmonies and nothing, nothing very complicated, but they would just hit them perfectly. Um, and uh I love it. So, so basically, punk music was stealing from doo-wop. Oh, absolutely! Like there, there is so much overlap in terms of musical language between like oldies and punk. It's a thing that everyone would have denied at the time, but is unmistakable in retrospect. I think. Right. Um, so, is, is Mike Durnt the the uh, backup singer? Uh, he's the backup singer as well as the bass player, obviously. I know he's the bass player. I only recently learned ha- why he's called Mike Durnt. Oh, really? Do you know this? That's, that's not his real name? <laughs> I do not know this. So he's called Mike Durnt because he was always doing like air bass as a kid and going, Durnt, 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 Durnt. <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me that Trey Cool's name isn't really Trey Cool. <laughs> no, it is. Oh, okay. Good. I was going middle to... name Anastasio. <laughs> we'll get to that eventually. <laughs> oh, I, I'm excited. Uh, I was going to pick the opening track "Burnout" as my third song, but because we brought up the doo-wop thing, I want to do "Pulling Teeth." Okay. Um, because this song, you listen to it, and at least me personally, all I can think of is '50s doo-wop music when I hear this, and it brings me back to what a great songwriter Billy Joe is, and how. Uh, how many different types of things he can do with songwriting, which is also not an easy thing to do. It's easy to fall into patterns. And this, although it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the songs on the album, where it falls works so well because right after Welcome to Paradise. So here we go. like this is the one that you could most easily do with your college glee club totally right 
the fact that any song on this album could be done with a college glee club just doesn't make sense. I don't know. Our glee club was pretty progressive. They weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think they did Space Oddity. Wait a minute. You weren't part of the glee club. Okay. But I but I saw them a number of times. I, I feel like I, like I'm going to learn a lot of things about you on this podcast. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, you've already learned I wasn't in the Glee Club. <laughs> you, also, you smoked weed during college. All right, like three times. <laughs> okay, okay, that that's more what I was expecting. <laughs> it has got this '50s doo-wop thing yes. go, going all through it. But what's funny is the intro starts out, and you're like, "Oh, here's another punk song," and it drops from this two chord thing that they're doing into these harmonies that work so well. Yeah. And and as somebody who has tried and failed many times at writing a good pop song, man, that is so good and so hard to do. Even the changes from the verse to the chorus. Oh, it's great. It's it, it it's just this movement that you that you hit it and you go, yeah. That's a great song. No, they, I think they do a good job of establishing that tension during the verse that you feel like something, something's got to be coming, and then it pays off really nicely. They do that over and over. That's true. Again. They do that on every song. Yeah. The only, the only thing I was going to say about Burnout, uh, if uh, if you weren't going to play it, is that Burnout is the one. It's the first song on the record, and it's the one that I feel like could easily have been another single of all of the other ones on the record. Man, I feel like fifteen songs on this album which I think there's 17. <laughs> could it, could Are it, there really 17 songs? Uh, Something like that. I, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to count right now, okay, but, but it's it's a lot. Yeah. I think that a lot of them could have been singles and, and worked. Uh, the ones that they picked, you know, this is why labels have A&R guys is because they know how to hear a hit and know know how to pick songs that, yep. that are radio friendly. I feel like I really would have enjoyed having that as my job. Yeah. I, f- I feel like that's a job that sounds really easy on the surface. Oh, if I'm you're... sure it would be terrible. Oh, like as a music fan, you go, oh, well, I know a hit when I hear it. And then you listen to interviews with A&R guys and all they say is, uh, I've failed over and over yeah, and over again. Yeah, no, I again. think there's a lot of personal failure and also a lot of having to like break bad news to people, which I do not enjoy doing. So never mind. One more thing about Rob Cavallo, the producer of this album. <laughs> yeah. Um, really interesting guy. He got hired as an A&R guy at Reprise Records when he first started out. Uh, they said that he seemed like a producer, but that they wanted to uh, basically break him in. When when you say he seemed like a producer, was that like he was wearing a particular kind of hat? Uh, particular kind of pants, actually. Close enough. Producer pants. Yes. Uh, you know, put puts them on one leg at a time. <laughs> uh, shoes underneath them. Anyway. Uh-huh. Uh he tried A&R for about a year and was miserable, uh, mainly because he was failing at it. He was trying to find bands that he thought sounded like they could make hits. And each one he would pick wouldn't create a hit. And he decided after that, I'm not an A&R guy. I'm a producer. And what I want to produce is bands and songs that I like. And so rather than trying to seek out things that sounded like a hit to him, he would just say, I love music like this. I'm going to produce this and put it out. And he feels that he made better albums because of it. And I mean, you look at his list of accolades and it's insane. Um, yeah, so see, I feel like I could do that, but then what would actually turn out to happen is be, I'd be like, here's the bands I've brought you, uh, you know, record label boss. I've got uh, Frank Bango and Cotton Mather and 
It's like, who are who, you? Who, who let you in my office? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> uh, what was the last song that you picked? Uh, it was Welcome to Paradise. Okay. So this was... This was actually a song that was on the previous album that they re-recorded. For oh, this album. I don't think I knew that. It's it's the only song that they re-recorded, and I wanted to mention that Green Day does have two albums prior to this that are worth a listen. But you really realize how much the production went into this and how polished this is right. when you hear what they were doing before this. So what this song reminds me of is when I was in high school, a few years before this album came out, my friend Brian uh, like moved out of his parents' house. Well, well, he was still, I think, a senior in high school or maybe maybe like right after he graduated and moved into a shitty apartment in downtown Portland with his girlfriend. And I went over there all the time and I thought this this is he's living the dream. (laughs) And I think he was probably not living the dream. But, you know, in a sense, he, he he was and wasn't at the same time, you know, and like I think every every young person has that experience where like, you know, this sucks. And also like it's this first taste of freedom. This this song encapsulates what I was saying about these songs sound upbeat and then you read lyrics or, or listen to what they're saying and, and you go, wow, that is really depressing. Mm-hmm. Dear mother, can you hear me whining? It's been three whole weeks since I left your home. He's he's basically talking about how he's terrified alone out on the streets. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's it's not an upbeat album per se. Um, you know, I haven't mentioned this came out the month that Kurt Cobain committed suicide. Right. So it, it was not exactly a time when everybody was like, boy, music is so great. It, yeah. it, it, it's it's feel good. And it's what keeps me going throughout the day. Yeah. I remember when uh, in like. Summer, yeah, summer of '94. I was uh, I was living in New York uh, and uh, interning at a uh, media watch group, and I was playing in utero over and over. And my roommate was like, "You have to stop. It's too depressing." <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you want to say about uh, Green Day's albums following this? Okay, so first of all, I absolutely unapologetically love American Idiot. I think that 99% of the population I think, does. I think so, too. I think there was kind of a backlash at some point in a very predictable sort of I'm too cool for this sort of thing way. It's it's hard to say that a band that sold 20 million copies of an album was catapulted into superstardom by another album. I know. Isn't, yeah, that's what's that's part of what's amazing about it. It's it's like Green Day had already been one of the biggest bands in the world yes. and had just about disappeared. And then American Idiot comes out 
and they're like even bigger than they were before. Mm-hmm. They, and they also had that song that gets played at every graduation and uh, season finale of a TV show and stuff. You mean the one that says fork stuck in the road? That one, yeah. <laughs> I, I only say that because every time I hear it, it's the only line I can understand of the verses. So I always sing it. <laughs> Another fork stuck in fork the fork stuck in the road. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so my uh, my teenager uh, Iris uh, is all is currently obsessed with American Idiot, and uh, I'm like, I, I did something right. <laughs> well, what I was talking about with writing great albums instead of just great songs, in an era where people were putting out singles, Green Day wrote a rock opera mm-hmm. and made it work, and the entire album is made to be listened to all the way through. Yes. And which, which I do frequently. And then they wrote another rock opera, which did not work. <laughs> well, but they, yeah. you know, sometimes sometimes uh, lightning only strikes once. Well, I mean, twice. <laughs> okay. Sometimes lightning doesn't strike three times. That's true. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to say about this album? About this album specifically, no. I do want to shout out some, some current bands that I feel like are clearly Green Day influenced and are doing the pop punk thing in a very satisfying way. Sure. Um, so the Baths, who are from, I think, probably the only band from New Zealand I've ever listened to. Okay. Um, and uh, they are terrific. A Giant Dog, I think they're from Texas. Uh, Roswell Kid, don't know where they're from. Uh, Stand Atlantic. Uh, Ty- Do you know Titus Andronicus? No, but I'm laughing in my own head right now because I could have sworn you said that I'm the one who's going to bring up obscure bands that nobody knows. No, 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 no. That's me. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Titus Andronicus is great. Uh, Tokyo Police Club. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, The Wonder Years? Nope. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, those are all good bands. It, go listen it, to them. It looks, yeah, it looks like I have to go back and do some critical listening myself. Sure. All right. Well, we are on the web at, uh, what's our website? Hiddenjukebox.com. <laughs> what, what is the show? I assume we're on Facebook too. Why don't why don't you tell us about that? Facebook.com slash hidden jukebox. Instagram? Uh no. Okay, but you can catch us on many podcast platforms, uh, such as iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Mm-hmm. Have I missed any? Keep going. Uh I don't know. <laughs> you know, you're you're already listening to it, so you already know where to get podcasts. It's that's, not a mystery. That's a great point. Until next time, I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster Burton. It's all by myself. I think it's perfectly okay, if not good for us to talk about that we are brothers. No, I think we should avoid that subject as much as possible. Just kidding. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, <laughs>